Welcome to Season 5 of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we talk with enterprise and technology platform leaders about the people, processes, and platforms that make marketing and customer experience successful, scalable, and sustainable. This is what creates an Agile brand. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom, advisor and consultant for Fortune 1000 marketing and CX leaders and teams as principal and chief strategist at GK5A and best-selling author, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and Agile certified coach. The Agile Brand Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to teksystems.com. To sign up for the Agile Brand newsletter and get the latest insights and articles on marketing technology and CX, or to purchase a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, go to gregkillstrom.com. You can also find all my books on Amazon and other retailers. And now on to the show. Today, we're going to talk about how to go beyond simply having happy customers or even loyal ones and follow the examples of iconic, well-loved brands and create a cult brand of your own. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Chris Neeland, co-founder of Cult Collective and The Gathering. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you. Uh, why don't we start by you giving a little background on yourself and, and what you're currently doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I'm currently the CEO of a brand advisory firm called Cult Collective. We have sort of devoted our lives and our careers to both researching and understanding. We, we call it the cult brand genome. That's probably a bit too cute, but really what's in the DNA of some of the most iconic, adored, cult-like brands on the planet. And then rather than just codifying it, we try to teach it and apply it to others because what we've discovered is that the things that they're doing are actually really replicatable. There's not something superhuman or particularly unique about them other than some beliefs and behaviors that they possess that we think we can pass along to other people. Great, great. Well, yeah, and we're going we're gonna to dive into... A, a lot more about that as well. And uh, that's what I'd love to start with is just talking about what exactly a, a cult brand is. And why don't, why don't you start by just, I know you defined it a little bit there, but if you could maybe uh, give a little more definition and, and perhaps a couple examples that the audience might be able to relate to. For sure. And, and we intentionally steer clear from sort of the most obvious examples. I mean, everybody would instantly recognize a Nike or an Apple right. or a Harley or a Starbucks. And it's not that those aren't worthy. Uh, it's just that in my experience, when you talk to people about those brands, everybody wants to treat them as an exception. Well, of yeah. course, they're exceptional because they had Steve Jobs or they had Walt Disney or they had Elon Musk or, you know, some somebody that does seem to possess attributes that most of us don't enjoy. So I, I prefer to talk about, you know, a different echelon. You know, let's talk about Gatorade. Let's talk about GoPro. Let's talk about Beats by Dre. Let's talk about Jeep, because those people don't necessarily know the origin stories but yet you can talk about Jeep and there's almost an instant get it factor. Yes, there is a tribe of enthusiasts and Jeep has done a particularly good job, not just being, you know, an SUV like so many other brands are. And, yeah. you know, cults are obviously, you know, there's a negative connotation with cults. We like the provocativeness of if I can get you to think differently 
that cults aren't bad, that there's actually can be good cults the way that you might have a cult movie or a cult band, for example, Jimmy Buffett or the Grateful Dead, then I might be able to also convince you to change your paradigm around what is marketing or what is advertising or what is customer experience. And so we, we like the idea of the disconnect that, you know, why are we trying to become cult-like? And it's because they can actually be super desirable things. And it doesn't have you know, it's a, it's a label, but what, what you're really looking for are the symptoms. What are the symptoms of a cult brand? And it, and it speaks to this above average emotional attachment that people apply to, you know, in, in any one person's life, they have a handful of brands that they are irrationally attached to. We're not, I'm not yeah. suggesting your toilet paper or your tuna fish are going to become cult brands, but elements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe your car, maybe your watch, maybe your apparel, uh, maybe your entertainment choices. Uh, those things do have potential because you're already emotionally disposed to want to fall in love with them, buy into them and become part of their community. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned that the, uh, at the top of the show, you mentioned that a lot of these things are actually replicable, even though we do we do kind of treat uh, there's a few a handful of brands you mentioned, many of them already that we kind of think about as, oh wow, they're so you know they're so unique and I could never my brand could never be you know thought of in that way. But you know, what does a brand need to do to get to that point? You know, what what do they need to get right before they can even think about becoming a, a cult brand? Well, I think I think you kind of just nailed the problem is that sort of order of operations. The first thing you need to do is desire to become a significant brand in people's lives. And that's the biggest problem is that most people don't have that ambition. Uh, our favorite group of people to work with are founders, because when you work with a founder, if you work with a cult brand founder, they are out to change the world. They are out to make a meaningful difference. And way too many entrepreneurs and certainly way too many second, third or fourth generation CEOs that didn't found the company just want to make a dollar. They're just trying to you know, pay their mortgage or impress their yeah. shareholders or increase their profits. And when you, when you make the financial, the financial outcome your desire, you're going to make a whole host of bad decisions that may optimize your stock price, but are not going to result in sustainable long-term uh, customer engagement and certainly not employee engagement because that's the other part of this coin is cult brands don't just have customers who are emotionally bought in, but they have employees. And, and you know, you read the same trades that I read, I'm sure, Greg, it's like employee engagement is at an all-time low as well right now. And so you kind of need the one-two punch of creating something that's so significant and people are bought into that they not only want to buy from that brand more often, they want to invest in that brand. They want to apply to work for that brand. You know, we, I remember talking to Yeti years ago and, you know, Yeti was not only a retail darling that was growing by hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but they were receiving tens of thousands of unsolicited resumes saying, can I come work for your company? And that's the one, two punch of if you try to become a cult brand and not just a successful business. So what does that look like for the employees? I mean, obviously a brand like Yeti that you mentioned has a lot of people inquiring, but you know, what does it look like internally for that, for those employees to be part of this, this cult brand? You know, it's one part Simon Sinek, you know, it's one part, does the brand have a demonstrable purpose that outdoor enthusiasts or yoga fans or, you know, fashion aficionados, you know, 
look at like swell water bottle. I love that example because it's such a commodity. It's just a water bottle. I don't even think they have a patent on the technology that keeps your beverages hot or cold. And yet they're disproportionately thriving because of this stated purpose uh, of the leader. So that's certainly one ingredient. The other ingredient is the role of HR. For most organizations, what I call mediocre organizations, HR is the closest synonym is the legal department. They're about (laughs) compliance. They're about benefits administration. They're about risk mitigation versus when you look inside a cult brand. I remember the very first one I was really exposed to was Airbnb. I was shocked at how much time the CEO and then almost more importantly, the CMO was using resources to endear the brand to not just in their case, it was also hosts, you know, people that uh, put their properties on the, on the platform, but it's this idea of, well, whose job is it to get people sort of lathered up? And the reality is most HR departments don't have those skills. Uh, Marketers are the ones that have learned how to persuade and how to influence and how to motivate and how to retain. And so you can almost just look at how what's the job description of the marketing department. And if they don't have any stewardship for recruitment or for retention, then, then you know that they're probably not following a cult brand playbook. Yeah. Yeah. And so is there, is there an order to this? You know, there, we've got, we've got leaders, we've got employees, we've got customers. Like, do, do you need to get one part right before you, you do the rest? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it starts with the leader. You know, you it's very difficult and we've seen it. We we host an event every year where we honor the most cult-like brands in North America. And about a thousand people descend on this castle in Banff, Alberta. It's spectacular. It's called The Gathering. If uh, you're you're a shameless plug there if your listeners want to check out cultgathering.com. But when when people leave that event, one of the most popular pieces of feedback we get is how can I get my boss or how can we get our board exposed to this kind of thinking because I want to work for companies like this. And it's very unsuccessful. You can't really mutiny your way into cult brand status. It's like, you know, it's your, your leaders are either converted or they're not, and they need to draw their own conclusions about why, when, where, how, Rarely do I ever talk to a CEO who says he doesn't want to do it or she doesn't want to do it, but often they don't want to do the work that's required to, to do it, to achieve it. I, I use the metaphor of lots of people would say, I'd love to lose 20 pounds, but very few people are changing their diet and going to the gym and doing the work that's necessary to do that. They're, they're hoping that there's just yeah. a pill that I can take that will dissolve the weight away. And, and unfortunately, cult brand status isn't achieved with a pill. It's achieved with a disciplined, methodical application of some proven principles that uh, some, a lot of people just aren't comfortable doing. Before we continue, let's take a quick break. If you're like many marketing leaders today, you're inundated with a need to improve the customer experience across an increasing number of channels and touch points, all while ensuring your team is performing well, innovating, and continuously improving. So how do you find the time to determine what's next for you, your team, your brand, and your customers? My company, GK5A, can help. Whether it is advisory services, evaluation of marketing technology platforms and solutions, or digital agencies and implementation partners, or assistance with creating strategic roadmaps and prioritization of efforts. We've done it all and served as an ally to Fortune 1000 brands and industries like financial services, healthcare, consumer electronics, professional services, and more. You can learn more about these services and contact us at www.gk5a, 
That's www.gk5a.com. Now let's get back to the show. Obviously, any any brand needs to continue to grow and add new customers to their to their base. But how how does a cult brand leverage existing customers to help it grow and and kind of continue to grow uh, their customer base? So great question. Th- actually, thank you for asking that because I think that there is a huge misperception about the allocation of dollars within cult brands versus non-cult brands. And the reality is all organizations have three buckets of money, paid media, earned media, and owned media. Owned media would be your assets, your website, your store, your call center, your sales force. Earned media would be, it could be public relations, it could be online influencers, it could be just word of mouth. And then paid media is, you know, mass media like television, newspaper, or, you know, Google keywords, Facebook ads, et cetera. So every organization has all the same tools in front of them. Non-cult brands start paid, earned, owned. They put most of their dollars into paid media. They will maybe hire a PR agency or maybe, you know, overspend on some online influencer who's promising some cachet. Mm. And then the marketing team oftentimes doesn't even really control the majority of owned assets. There might be a separate e-commerce team, a separate store ops team, somebody else runs the call center, somebody else runs the sales team. And then the biggest owned asset of all is obviously your product. And it's shocking how many companies marketing doesn't even control the product. They're given the product and told to go find people to buy it, but they don't inform the products, the features, the services, et cetera. So uh, they kind of spend all of their money, 70, 80, maybe even 90% on paid, 5, 10, 15% on earned, and then the least amount on owned. And literally cult brands are the exact opposite. They're Mm. spending the majority of their resources on their owned assets. That's how like a Lululemon gets to a billion dollars without any paid media because their owned assets, which wasn't just their amazing product, it was their role within retail. They went vertically integrated. It was the community that they fostered of, of yoga and fitness enthusiasts. And then they build their own assets with the brief of make it remarkable. Do something within this product or this experience or this service that is going to force conversation. On on the extreme end, you get Red Bull dropping people out of space, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. I I think of somebody like Salesforce, which is one of the rare B2B examples. But, you know, Salesforce took all of this paid media that was going to trade shows and put it into an owned asset and created Dreamforce, where they're now actually being paid to have people come for a commercial versus paid to have people hoping to, uh, you know, stop by their booth. And so do your owned assets so well that it creates earned media. And then if you decide it's necessary, sure, buy some paid media as well. But it's usually the last resort versus the first place that you start. Yeah, yeah. And so given that framework, I mean, from, from the owned perspective, there's also user like customer groups that kind of are self-forming and and somewhat organic but i think you know some customers they they like interfacing with the sort of brand blessed um platforms and and things like that and and others want to create their own and 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 i i would imagine that a cult brand would want a mix of both owning owning a platform obviously gives you advantages but how does a brand 
kind of set up the conditions where there is some organic growth of things just popping up and customers just talking about the product? Because I would imagine that's, I don't know if you call that earned or quasi-owned or, or or whatever it might be, but it, it seems like that that could be a, a, a major benefit as well. Well, yeah, I mean, think, I mean, so again, we talked about HR departments sometimes are over-indexing on just compliance versus engagement. Marketing departments do the same thing. I mean, there's a lot of marketing departments that create strict brand guidelines and these brand standards, yeah. and then they squash anything and everything that's not tied into that. I mean, I think, think about like to what Google does. I mean, Google every day, their logo is different when you go to google.com. Yeah, right, right. That would drive many organizations crazy. Airbnb did the same thing. They say, we don't even want a logo. We're going to have a symbol. And that symbol can be modified and played with by the community. So part of it is giving the community permission to play. I love what McDonald's has done recently. I mean, McDonald's has always been a cult brand, but they really stepped it up in the past couple of years, particularly through the pandemic. And it was kind of like, how do you McDonald's, right? Like the Travis Scott McDonald's menu and, you know, the, the way that they're modifying the menu, like that's, that's being celebrated, not discouraged. Yeah. In and out Burger, which is popular in my neck of the woods, same. I mean, there's almost this cult brand inner circle that knows about the secret menu and the lingo that's required to order things. And, you know, how do you fuel that and encourage that versus discourage that would be part of it. And then how do you like, I like to say, how are you bringing the beer and the chips to the party? Like the largest motorcycle rally in, in North America is in Sturgis, South Dakota. That is not a Harley Davidson event. But mm. it's motorcycle enthusiasts have come there. And Harley says, how do we make this even better? How do we throw lighter fluid onto the fire that's already there? And so they bring the entertainment or they bring a party or they'll activate there. But with A, it's wonderful that they don't have to pay for the party or incur the legal liability of likely what happens at Sturgis every year. <laughs> so they, they're, they're not responsible for it. But, you know, you think about you know, film festival, I, we just, I'm, I'm here in Utah, we just finished the Sundance Film Festival. And yeah. it's kind of interesting to look at the ecosystem of brands. Some of them just want to be associated with the celebrity component, which I think is the most superficial way to activate there. Others should have been there in terms of people that are pure, either movie enthusiasts as an audience or camera operators, people that use this equipment or destinations that are trying to get the film industry to move to their community. Like there could have been a lot more productive activation at places where your community has already decided that we're going to show up. And it's like, I just don't think that, I think the brands more often than not show up and make it worse. They over-commercialize it. They have a lame booth. They're so worried about where's their logo appearing versus yeah. how do I actually make this experience better for the guests that are here? Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned the potentially different budget allocation, you know, for, between the paid, earned, owned, all of that, that that uh, these cult brands are doing. What about measurements? You know, are there different measurements or is it different emphasis on the same measurements? You know, how does how does a cult brand look at measuring success that might be different from uh, another another brand? I'm smiling because you're, it's as if this was scripted. So you have, you've asked really <laughs> great questions because that, that is another area where we have been bamboozled somewhere along the lines in the past 10 or 12 years, the folks at McKinsey, no, I think it's Bain. 
the folks at Bain convinced us that net promoter score is a valid way of measuring employee health or brand engagement. And I've actually never seen a worse indicator at predicting if this is actually, not just predicting engagement, even predicting sales. I've seen net promoter scores go up and business go down. I've seen net promoter scores go down and business go up. Like there's no correlation with actual outcome, but it's also not correlated with true emotional buy-in. And the number one benefit of net promoter score is it's simple to administer. But even that is is uh, is a weakness because I mean, have you ever bought like a, like I just bought a snowblower, right? And you get the three minute guilt trip at the end that you're going to receive a survey. And if you don't give me a 10, (laughs) I'm not going to get my bonus and my kids aren't going to have Christmas this year. Right. So it's like, how is there any sort of validity in what I actually say if I'm just guilted into giving people 10? So yes, we absolutely need better KPIs. We, my, my firm endorses one called a a customer emotional quotient, a CEQ. It, It, leans into not the the demographic and the psychographic step, but you're trying to reveal attitudes and emotions and feelings. I kind of equate it to, have you ever taken a um, a career aptitude test? Maybe like when you were thinking about going to college or you yeah, ever sat yeah. down with a counselor, like a career aptitude test is not 300 questions of, do you want to be an astronaut? Yes, no. Do you want to be a fireman? (laughs) Yes, no. Right. They ask these aptitudes about where you might have proclivities. And then they use that to triangulate. Maybe you should consider something in veterinarian school, or maybe you should consider the military, or maybe you should consider architecture because of these feelings and beliefs that you have towards the things that are common in those professions. So way too many surveys. If you're not if you're not being bamboozled by net promoter, you're probably sending out lame customer satisfaction surveys. Were you greeted within six seconds? Was the parking lot clean? How were the bathrooms? Like you're asking all these functional compliance KPIs versus do you feel like this brand is trustworthy? Do you feel like they've got your back? Did they elicit a smile? You know, you can triangulate their feelings and attitudes. And as you improve those, we've seen demonstrable improvements to other performance indicators. Our our favorite is profitability, even more so than top line, because I think you can buy a lot of top line in an unsustainable, profitable way. So we try to tether CEQ scores to growth and profit. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna have to have you back on the show and and have a debate over NPS with some other um, guests I've had on. I think that would that would make for an interesting. Uh, I'd love interesting it. Top. You're but saying you I have do- guests that are uh, that are defending it. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of brands that are using, you know, I've client customers that I work with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's rather ubiquitous. And, you know, if it's not that it's customer effort score or CSAT or, you know, one, one of those that use similar and I, yeah, I've, I've written, I've written some articles about it as well that, that may be deemed controversial as far as, you know, I, I think there are definitely some shortcomings and there's some things that. Well, here's the, here's the easiest thing. What do you think NPS stands for? What's the acronym? Oh, net promoter score. Right. But it's not. A couple of years ago, Bain also acknowledging how deficient NPS was, bamboozled us yet again by changing it to net promoter system. And they've realized it's ridiculous to think one score and one question is going to have an impact. So they actually created a whole nother suite of things that the tool does. 
And they just didn't let everybody know that the S is no longer a score. It's a system. And the system was designed to address all of the flaws that they themselves knew existed within the previous you know, iteration. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, in the in the entertainment industry, that's what retconning. <laughs> so kind of, uh, um, after the fact, um, yeah, no, I, to be honest, I didn't even know that. I, I, yeah. I you used should go, go, go to their website now. Yeah. And it's all about this system that is nowhere near as simple as let's just ask everybody a referral question on a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's great. And it, Definitely, I agree with with the the sentiments. Here. I get heated um, on it because because I, I I do feel like people I do I mean listen Bain's a remarkable consulting firm. This isn't about them, but I do feel like people have been buying snake oil from charlatans and they and so many executive comp packages are tied to improvements to NPS. It has become ubiquitous, and I think it's the reason why brands are failing faster. I think it's just an example of a. Um, of a placebo that people are taking, thinking that it's making an effect. And I think it's almost unethical at this point. So my, my tone and tenor has escalated over the years because it's just inertia now. Now we're fighting legacy. And even if they know it's broken, but we've been doing it for so long, it's wrong, but it's at least directionally wrong. I'm like, when did that become the, the standard? Is like, we, we're just going to accept the, the fallacies of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Great points there. Well, um, Thanks for joining the show. I've got one last question before we we wrap up here. So to kind of you've given a lot of great advice already, but you know, just wanted to get one piece of advice from you for you know, let's say those those brands out there that they may not even be quite ready to say, you know, we're we're ready to step up to being a, a cult brand, but you know, where where do they get where do they get started with getting more engaged customers and employees and and moving in the right direction? You know, I gave a speech a few years ago when I was in Canada. I don't know. Are you familiar with Tim Hortons, Greg? Is that a yeah, yeah, brand? I am. So Tim Hortons is frequently voted one of the most adored, beloved, pick your metaphor or adjective, uh, of brands of Canada. And it's a, you know, it's a decent coffee and donut shop. Um, but it's just, it, you know, they've kind of wrapped themselves in the Canadian flag. There's a lot of patriotism there, a lot of affinity there, a lot of memories they do a lot of great philanthropy things throughout the country. But I, I like to show a picture of the very first Tim Hortons. And it is like this crappy little donut shop that you know looks like every one that you'd see in any strip mall with just nothing remarkable about it. And most donut shops are not remarkable. And most will barely scrape by. And maybe they get passed down one or two generations before they go out of business. And yet this crappy little donut shop over a 50-year period became one of the most iconic and beloved brands in Canada. And it's not because they had better donuts. It's because they made a decision that we are going to use this business as a vehicle to accomplish something more. And it was the ambition of the leadership team and the choices they made about how they're going to spend their money and who they're going to hire and what they're going to do that allowed them to transcend hundreds of mediocre competitors. And that's what I think every small business leader needs to decide. What am I doing? Am I trying to make a job or am I trying to build something that is going to outlast me and really change the way that people think about X, Y, or Z, right? And, and, and I think that that's, if you, if you can start from that place, you will ask different questions. You will measure your impact in different ways 
and you will find greater joy in what you're doing at work. And it's not at the sacrifice of making money. It's not like you're going to, it's going to take longer or cost you more. It's not about spending more. It's about spending differently. And um, that's what we're trying to say is with the same amount of money, how could you deploy those dollars into your culture, into your brand, into your guest experience, into your product? I mean, there's just so much mediocre product. I, I went to the grocery store the other day. There's 19 different ranch dressings on the aisle. Like, oh, really? Yeah. Do I need 19 and this one has 10% more peppercorn or this one's, you know, a little bit less salt? It's like, we don't need more mediocre things. Right. Yeah, I love the Elon Musk quote where he built Tesla. And he's like, Tesla was not a 20% better Prius. You know, if it was, right. it would never have become Tesla. It was a 200% better Prius. And it was so much better that he doesn't have to do a lot of marketing or, you know, in the form of paid advertising, his marketing goes into, you know, the product features within the car itself and the unusual buying process and the ownership community afterwards. And I just wish more people were spending time creating something that was inherently worthy of our attention. Yeah, uh, love it. Great, great advice. Well, again, I'd like to thank Chris Neeland, co-founder of Cult Collective and The Gathering for joining the show. You can learn more about Chris and Cult Collective by following the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.gregkilstrom.com. That's G-R-E-G-K-I-H-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. To get a copy of my latest book, House of the Customer, visit my website, or you can find it on Amazon or other retailers. The Agile brand is produced by Missing Link, a Latina-owned, strategy-driven, creatively-fueled production co-op. From ideation to creation, they craft human connections through intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Until next time, stay agile.